Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have promised that the word that goes out from your mouth will not return to you empty, but will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. And so we pray now you'd accomplish your good purposes in the hearts of your people, the preaching of your word this evening. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Please open your Bibles to our sermon text this evening, uh, returning back to our study in the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 9, verses 20 through 27 in the Pew Bibles, page 400 and, uh, 400, seven, sorry, 747. Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decree. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. It's been some months since we were last in Daniel, but in my last sermon on the first part of this chapter, we saw Daniel pouring out his heart to the Lord in a prayer of confession of sin. This evening we see the Lord's response through the angel Gabriel in one of the most well-known prophecies in the book of Daniel, the 70 Weeks. And we've been blessed as a church recently as we've been studying Zechariah and also Daniel. And also back during the Advent season, looking at other Old Testament prophecies, we've been blessed to see how often the prophets are pointing us forward to the coming Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that's the case here in this prophecy. It's a prophecy that lightly sketches the intervening period, but mostly focuses on the climactic work of Christ and what will come shortly afterwards. This passage also has a lesson for us as well about prayer. As you see how the Lord 
answers prayer. The Lord answers Daniel's prayer by giving him Christ, by pointing him to Christ and his redeeming work. And is that not how he answers our prayers today as well? God has given us his son, and in Christ, he has given us every spiritual blessing as well. So look at our passage this evening in two parts. First, prayer answered, and second, God's sovereign plan revealed. So first tonight, prayer answered. In order to understand the answer to Daniel's prayer, we first need to remember the context of his prayer. What was he praying about? And with our recent pattern of Ron preaching in the evening, it was actually all the way back Reformation Sunday at the end of October, the last time I preached from Daniel. So let me remind you, let me refresh your memories. What is going on here in the book of Daniel? Babylon had recently fallen. And Daniel, after the fall of Babylon, is studying the book of Jeremiah. And he had been struck by Jeremiah's prophecy that God's people, Israel, would be exiled for 70 years before the Lord would restore them back to the promised land. And he recognizes that restoration is coming. But he also knew that their exile was a fulfillment of the curses of the covenant in Leviticus 26, which also said that if they confess their iniquity and humble themselves, only then would the restoration come. So Daniel sees them on the verge of this restoration, but they still had not fully humbled themselves by their time in, in exile in Babylon. And he is driven to a prayer of confession of sin on behalf of the people. He prays for mercy upon the people and upon the city of Jerusalem and her sanctuary. And we're told in verses 20 and 21 that while Daniel was still speaking and praying this prayer of confession, the angel Gabriel arrives from the Lord. This is the second time that Gabriel has appeared to Daniel as he came in the previous chapter, chapter 8, to explain the vision of a ram and a goat. And perhaps you also know that this is the same Gabriel, who's also the angel that appears to Zechariah to announce the birth of his son, who would become John the Baptist, and also who would then appear to Mary to announce the birth of her son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's interesting that Daniel notes that he comes at the time of the evening sacrifice. It's not that there actually was an evening sacrifice. There was no temple. There were no offerings at this time. But even in exile, Daniel continued to pray three times a day. He measured his day according to the schedule of the temple. And he longed for the restoration of that temple and the sacrifices. And the morning and the evening sacrifices were associated with the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And that's exactly what Daniel is praying for. What Gabriel will reveal in his response will point Daniel to the final sacrifice. That every Old Testament sacrifice was pointing forward to the only blood that can wash away sin. So Gabriel arrives, and we read in verse 22, He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So we see here the purpose for Gabriel's visit to Daniel. Because Daniel is a greatly loved, a highly treasured servant of the Lord, Gabriel has sent, been sent on this mission to give him this insight and understanding into the Lord's purposes, the Lord's plan. And this is clearly meant to encourage Daniel. Certainly it would be encouraging to know, for Daniel to know that he is greatly loved. 
Now, the revelation also answers the very things that he was praying about. It's, de- it's an answer about how the Lord will deal with the sins of his people, how the Lord will restore the city of Jerusalem. But we'll also see that things are much more complex than Daniel could have known from his reading of the prophecy of Jeremiah. That's where this new understanding comes in. It's not just 70 years, but then 70 weeks, 70 times 7. Ultimately, Daniel will write down this prophecy for all of God's people to be encouraged by it. The time may be longer than Daniel had expected, but also what the anointed one, the Messiah, will accomplish is far greater than Daniel could have imagined. And so the Lord answers Daniel's prayer, and he points him to Christ, just as he answers the prayers of his people today, just as his ears are open to your prayers, and he is quick to respond and give good gifts to his children when you ask him. And you know that this is true, because while he appointed Daniel forward to Christ who was to come, we look back on Christ who already came, And we know that Christ was God's gift to his people. He gave his only begotten son because he so loved you. And so he is the reassurance that he loves you enough to hear your prayers, to answer you, and to work for the good of all his children. And so first we see here that God answers the prayers of his people. Now let's second look at God's sovereign prayer, sovereign plan that is revealed. Before we dive into the details of the 70-week prophecy in verses 24 through 27, I want to give a bit of a big-picture overview and orientation. Gabriel announces that the Lord has decreed 70 weeks for his people in his holy city, Jerusalem. Then there's an overview of six main things that are accomplished during this time in verse 24. Then verses 25 through 27 go back and work through the period in a mostly chronological order. The first question to ask is, what are these 70 weeks? And we know that Daniel was just praying about the 70 years of exile that were about to be completed. But now we see that after this period, a new period begins, which is, is seven times longer. Not 70 years, but 77, 70 weeks. On that same chapter of Leviticus, which speaks of the covenant curse of exile, which Daniel was likely familiar with, the Lord says several times, And if, in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Leviticus 26.18. Now this principle of sevenfold punishment is then repeated in verse 21, verse 24, verse 28. Now it seems that while the Lord will be faithful to restore his people to the land after 70 years, just as he had promised, His restoration will not be the full and the glorious restoration that they had hoped for. It will still be under the thumb of a foreign empire. And so there is a sense in which they remain exiles even though they are restored to the promised land. They will need to wait for seven times 70 for the full deliverance, for the full restoration to come, for the Messiah to finally arrive. But this principle of seven times 70 also draws on the chapter just before Leviticus 26 in Leviticus 25, which speaks of the year of Jubilee. Now, the Jubilee comes at the end of a cycle of seven Sabbath years. Now, the 
The seven years, every seven years, there would be a Sabbath year, a year of rest. And so every, after every seven cycles of seven Sabbath years, every 49 years, there is a jubilee year. And that is, in effect, a super Sabbath. In the jubilee years, debts are forgiven, ancestral property is returned, slaves are set free. It was a wonderful celebration of the grace of God. And so here we see, at the end of 70 weeks, 70 sevens, we see this, what we might call a super mega Sabbath, as God's people are set free from their sins. And so therefore, the overall picture we get of the 70 weeks is that, on one hand, it is an extension of Israel's being punished under exile. And yet, it is also a prophecy of their coming jubilee deliverance. There's two sides to this prophecy. Now, the next question to ask is the timing of these 70 weeks. Now, this is heavily debated among sincere believers. Perhaps you're familiar with this if you've ever studied this prophecy. And so here I do want to give two basic approaches to this. You can either take these as 490 literal years, 7 times 70, or as a symbolic number for a complete period of time, 7 being that number of completion. Now we know where the timeline ends with the cutting off of the anointed one, Christ, in the middle of the final week, the, the, the 70th seven. And then we also know, verse 25, where it begins, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. The difference in these two interpretations is this. If you take this as a literal 490 years, you cannot begin with the rebuilding of Jerusalem right after the exile. Jeremiah's 70 years are complete when King Cyrus allows and decrees that the exiles are to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, rebuild the city in 539 B.C. You can just hear from that number, 539 B.C. It's clearly too early for a literal 490 years to begin and get you to the birth of Jesus and then the completion of his ministry and his crucifixion, 30 A.D. However, there is also the decree of Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 7, which allowed the priest Ezra to return and to restore the temple. That's in 457 BC. And if you take this number, you add 490. Uh, well, actually, it's, it's uh, exactly 483 for the 69 uh, sevens. The timing of this works out just right to get the beginning of Jesus' ministry and then to his crucifixion. So you can do all the numbers. You can see it all worked out on a literal approach. Uh, you can get the numbers to work out just right. However, there is, on the literal approach, a large gap between the end of Jeremiah's 70 weeks and then the beginning of Jeremiah's 70 years and then the beginning of the 70 weeks. And then, after Christ's crucifixion, we'll also see that on a literal approach, the final elements of the prophecy actually fall outside of the 70 weeks. And so that's why I personally think it's actually better to see these 70 weeks with as a symbolic number. I believe they run from 539 BC when Cyrus declares that the exile should return to the city to rebuild Jerusalem all the way to Christ's crucifixion in 30 AD and then continue after that to the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's true that this then 
encompasses slightly more than 490 years. But even the 70 years of Jeremiah, they're not exactly 70 years. They were slightly less than that. The point is not that God is giving exact dates. He surely could if he wanted to. Perhaps he uses symbolic numbers which communicate closely enough the timing of the events, but also communicate theological concepts like the Sabbath and the Jubilee. So I believe that's what's going on here. And the overall point is that God is sovereign over all things. He has decreed what will come to pass, and then he puts his plan into action. And because the Lord is in control, his people can trust in him and rest secure. Now, let's take a closer look at the details of these verses and how they are fulfilled by Christ. In verse 24, we get an overview of six major accomplishments during these 70 weeks, and all of these are accomplished by Christ himself. The first three clearly deal with the problem of sin, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. These three speak of what Christ has accomplished in his death and resurrection. He has conquered sin and death. He has borne our transgressions in his body on the tree, and he has atoned for it all, once and for all. This is the negative side of dealing with sin, putting it away. But then we get the positive side, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now this is, first of all, the righteousness which Christ himself lived out, both actively and passively, in his perfect life and his atoning death. But it is also that same righteousness which he grants to, which he imputes to all who put their faith in him. And fifth, we see, to seal up both vision and prophet. Now this seal is a seal in the sense of a mark of authentication. And Christ does this by fulfilling and confirming all the revelation of God, all the Old Testament, all that came before him. All God's promises are yes and amen in him. It's also true that with the closing of the canon, uh, after the, the age of the apostles, the age of prophecy has ceased. But I don't think that's what is in view here. It's not sealing in the sense of sealing up and coming to a close. This is speaking of a seal as a mark of authentication, and that's what Christ does. Then six, we have, and to anoint a most holy. And the Hebrew here, it's ambiguous. The ESV has to anoint a most holy place, or it could be translated, it could be translated to anoint a most holy one. But I think the best translation is to simply put, to anoint a holy place. Of holies. Now, this, of course, is also referring to Christ, who is the most holy. But also remember that He was God Himself incarnate, who came to dwell, to tabernacle in the midst of His people. God's glory come down. And so He came to replace the temple in Jerusalem, which we also see reflected in this prophecy that the temple was no longer the central uh, place of worship, for we now worship in spirit and in truth. And so we see Christ fulfills this as well. After this opening summary statement, the 70 weeks are then laid out in detail in verses 25 through 27. Verse 25 speaks of the rebuilding of Jerusalem during the time of waiting for the arrival of the anointed one, the prince Jerusalem will be rebuilt with squares and a moat, as we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But it is a troubled time. 
As God's people are still in a time of exile within the land, longing for the coming of their Messiah. And then in verse 26 we read, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Here we have a prophecy of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it helps to remember, anointed one is the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And in Greek, this is Christ, as in Jesus the Christ. The final phrase, he shall have nothing, it's puzzled interpreters, but perhaps it refers to him being stripped down to nothing. Even his clothes are distributed by lots in his death. He gives everything for the sake of his people. The second half of verse 26 will go with the second half of verse 27. So let's look at verse 27a. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now this speaks of Christ establishing the new covenant in his blood. Now Daniel, who we know has been reading Jeremiah, would have understood this as it's, the new covenant is clearly predicted in Jeremiah 31. And of course, with Christ's death being the final sacrifice for sins, there are to be no more sacrifices, no more offerings. The exact timing seems to be that Christ comes during the final, the 70th week, and his death is in the middle of that week. And so from that point on, even though, yes, technically there were still sacrifices being offered in the temple in Jerusalem, they were no longer of any spiritual significance. When Christ died... The temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The final sacrifice had been offered and had been accepted by God the Father. And so more animal sacrifices at this point were of no value at all. Now following Christ's death and resurrection, we also have here a prediction of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which has now been replaced by Jesus Christ. And so... We read in 26b, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And then 27b, And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And we know with some certainty how these things are fulfilled because of Jesus' own commentary on this prophecy. As I read earlier from Jesus' Olivet Discourse, Jesus predicts that the temple will be destroyed, that not one stone will be left on top of another, as judgment upon Jerusalem for rejecting him, for rejecting their own long-awaited Messiah when he had finally come to them. This is ultimately fulfilled by, as it says, the prince the Roman general Titus, who destroys Jerusalem in 70 AD in fulfillment of both this prophecy of Daniel, well, received from Gabriel, but also the prophecy of Jesus himself. Even though we see here it is the Lord's will to bring desolation upon his holy city, there is also still this final warning that judgment will also come upon the desolator. We see the Lord's plan. We see it laid out. What can we conclude? From this prophecy about the 70 weeks. First, take heart that you can rest in God's sovereign plan. He is the Lord who declares the end from the beginning, who rules over all of history, and he is working all things for the good of his beloved people. 
And so you can rest, you can trust in him. Know that the Lord is the one who takes care of the sparrows. He numbers the very hairs of your head. And so you know that he will also take care of you. Second, trust that God will answer your prayers. And he will give you what you need more than anything else. He will give you Christ. What Daniel was seeking in his prayers was mercy for the sins of his people. And so the Lord pointed him forward to the coming Messiah, to the one who would be cut off so that they might be welcomed in, so that their sins might be forgiven. And that's what we need more than anything else. Now you can look back on the finished work of Jesus Christ and know that when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So bring your sins to him and know that he will wash you clean. But also whatever else you seek in prayer, you know that the Lord knows how to give good gifts to his children when you ask of him. So go boldly to the Lord through Jesus Christ, your high priest. And just as he has promised, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this evening that we can come to you with confidence because of Christ, our great high priest. His coming was prophesied hundreds of years beforehand, and he perfectly accomplished all that was predicted. We give you thanks that he has atoned for all our sins, that he has brought in everlasting righteousness, and so we rest in him. May we always trust in you, knowing that you are sovereign, that all your plans will come to pass, that nothing will separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.